I'd like to take a minute of your time to let you know what you can do to help Recovery Radio continue its mission as a premier provider of free ongoing support to recovering people worldwide. Recently, our expenses have skyrocketed. The increase is powered by our increasing bandwidth and storage needs caused by the growing popularity of our programs. This is actually a good problem to have, as it shows that we are filling a need as we continue our mission to serve the recovery community. However, even good problems are problems that need resolutions, and this is where you come in. Recovery Radio has started a fundraiser to help defray our additional costs. Please surf on over to recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. Give whatever amount you can, and rest assured your donation will be used to keep Recovery Radio on air and on mission. Please become part of the solution and help us support the recovery community. I'm Charlie, I'm an alcoholic. And I'm not sure blankly off in the face, that was my, that was my pensive look. Uh, I want to thank um, the members of the committee who asked me to participate in this conference. It's, it's really an honor to be asked to speak uh, as, in any part of any AA program, and uh, I consider Al-Anon to be a direct adjunct from Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I'm really honored to be asked to speak at an Al-Anon conference, especially. I mean, that's, um, I, I, I like Al-Anons, and they seem to, uh, I mean, they like me. They're the only ones who actually did like me. Uh, <laughs> Potential ones uh, seem to tolerate me pretty well. I I feel a little self-conscious after all these great talks, and here it is. Uh, I've, I've seen I've, so many people on this crowd. I see Ed and Nancy. I, I got here Thursday night and um, was squired to a meeting in Minneapolis, the Central Pacific Group, and a lot of their members are here as a, a support. And uh, uh, Ed and Nancy, Nancy picked me up on, on Friday, and we went around and looked around the city and, and uh, had a wonderful afternoon. Just uh, a couple of alcoholics, and Nancy was the secretary of my home group when I was uh, newly sober. And um, it's, this, this program is so widespread around this country and around the world, and yet you can go virtually anywhere, at any meeting, in any place in the world, and you can be welcomed there whether you know anybody or not. You know, you don't have to know anybody to be welcomed in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm assuming the same goes for Al-Anon, too. Um, I'm really honored to be here and, and privileged to be sober and uh, privileged to have this program in my life that I can use as I choose to uh, to try to stay sober and comfortable and happy on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I'm going to stroke of uh, scheduling. I got to follow the Terminator tonight. Uh, <laughs> I love Geneva, but I got a healthy respect for Bob. Okay. Now you get Conan the Librarian. Uh, I have really... Um, it's kind of embarrassing to be asked to speak at a function like this because I have no story. Uh, I was the most boring drunk log and alcoholic anonymous. But boy... If I if I could have gotten out more, um, I would have. 
you would have been odd is what I would have gotten away with. Um, my dad's family is from uh, Moorhead, Minnesota. I'm a native Californian. I was born in Glendale. I'm, I've lived within a 30-mile radius of Glendale my entire life. Um, that's, that's geography. Um, both of my parents uh, deprived me of the right of a happy childhood, or of a miserable childhood. They, I had a terrible childhood. They both loved me. and. I don't know about any other, uh, how many, I got, just, this is not, I'm not patronizing a guy, I just have to see, will the alcoholics please raise their hand? I know they're eight, four, five, okay, great, thank you. Uh, oh, I feel much better now. <laughs> if I say anything politically incorrectly, you know, I'll vote for the door. Keith, uh, start the car. <laughs> Keith has taken me all over the place, uh, and uh, no matter what I say, he just smiles and shakes his head. Yeah, and, uh, we're, having a, we're just having a great time. Um, I don't even want to, why don't we just go someplace and have coffee? I, I feel so damn good, why bother? You know, that's, uh, that's how I drank. Um, I guess uh, my, I'm an only child. Uh, my father was a carpenter, and my mother a uh, humble virgin woman. And I was... My, my parents, um, my parents deeply, deeply loved me. And uh, my mother had tried to have babies, and she had three children who were, who were all stillborn. And so when I was born, all I had to do was clear my throat, and things happened. You know. And they tried to help me, but ever since I can remember, I felt odd. And I mean, not grotesque. Well, yeah, grotesque. Um, I heard a guy describe it in a meeting a couple of months ago as being just three clicks off of center, not able quite to quite get, never able to get. You have to go the whole circle around to get back to center, not just go back to three clicks. And I've always felt that way. I've always felt uncomfortable in any space I was occupying. You know that feeling of just not right, but I, I never showed that. You know, I was always a nice boy. Um, I hated mankind, and I uh, I was always of above average intelligence. I, I was uh, I've always been burdened with potential. I've always I've had people all my life telling me, you know, you've really got potential to do something. I'm unaware that people who are successful are never told that. Ever. They've never they never took Dwight Eisenhower to one side and said, You've got potential. Uh, he just did what he was supposed to do. But not me, because I had potential. And my attitude was is I know I've got potential and you know I've got potential. What's the problem? I'll use it when I'm damn good and ready. I'm just not ready to use it. So I'm not going to. But I will. 
But not now. And that's how I felt that conflict inside. You know, my parents did everything they could for me. My dad would, uh, my father would get up every morning and with my, cause my mom was working and my dad uh, worked and he would get up in the morning about four in the morning. He was, he was, a, he was on Minnesota time most of his life and he, uh, he would always get up way before the crack of dawn. He would uh, sit in the kitchen and he would make my lunch for me. He'd, he'd make sandwiches and he'd put everything together and put it in a bag for me. And I would take that and I'd go to school and I would throw it in the trash on the way into school. Because I was embarrassed to be lugging this lunch around, you know. And then I felt the guilt that goes along with it because I knew he did that. And I looked at my father and he had a fifth grade education. And I thought, I don't want to be like him either, you know. All the other kids' dads seem to have briefcases and wore ties to work. And my old man's out there in these gray uniforms with sawdust on his glasses and those squishy sole crepe shoes. He's out in the garage cutting wood for people making cabinets and doing it because he likes them. And I thought, oh boy, poor sap, because I'm going places, you know. Once I get out of here, once I get this potential thing handled, I'm taken off. And um, I felt embarrassed by them, and I felt uh, just trapped in life, basically. But I couldn't tell anybody about it, because my family pioneered the uh, don't ask, don't tell policy. You know, we just never talked about our feelings, which some days I, I look long for with nostalgia. But uh, everybody seems to me. We seem to be attached to our feelings, and uh, I, I didn't know what to do. I was just paralyzed with, with uh, fear and, and feelings of no, no self-esteem, and double, the double problem was I had the big picture of everything. You know what that is? You alcoholics know. You seem to know things that other people don't know. You seem to instinctively understand things that other people just don't get. And it makes you feel different. You feel powerless to do anything about it, but you know what's happening. You know? I get some mild form of paranoia. We managed to finesse it later on, but uh, I just felt like people just don't understand how, how intricate life is. You know? I do. Living in this room that I was in, I had my, my own room in my house, and uh, I went in there when I was 14 and put down dark green carpet and painted the walls black sat and listened to my stereo and listened to rock and roll and records and I came out when I was 18 and was ready to face the world, you know. Um, I graduated from high school at 17 and went right into college and uh, graduated when I was 31 and I... I felt like Virginia does when I look at people who went to college he got out when they were 22 and just went on and made careers and so fast. I mean... How stupid can you get? I want to live, you know? I want to live. I want to see the magic in life. I want to really live life, not go out and get that career like all these idiots do, you know? I just can't, I can't deal with that. I went right into the music industry. I started working as a clerk in a music store, and uh, I was, that wasn't cutting it. And, and yet one time when I was, uh, when I was working in that music store, I was 18 years old, and a bunch of the guys who were from my high school who were sort of the hoodlums of my high school. That's back in 68 when hoods were, you know, like the West Side Story kids. And uh, these guys came in there and they, they were friendly to me. You know, I, I look pretty much like I do now, except about 30 pounds less. And Actually, I was 129 and 6'2". And uh, I, my sponsor said, he was looking at pictures of my house one afternoon and said, you look like a rabid mosquito with a thyroid condition. Um... I'm one of those people who's always had that look of, you know, all the lights are out and everybody's home. <laughs> and they, I started hanging out with these guys, and uh, they asked me to go to a party with them. And we went to this party, and, 
and somebody gave me a, a 16 ounce can of malt liquor. I'd never drunk before. I mean, I've had beer, you know how you sip your parents' beer, it wasn't a big deal. But I had never had a real drink before. I had a moral objection to it because I believe that you don't need stuff like that. That's a crutch. You just pull yourself together. You handle your problems. You don't go whining to everybody about it. You just deal with it. You just shut up and do it. You know? You just grab the power yourself and fix it. Make it better. And I believe that. And I drank that 16-ounce can of malt liquor and everything changed. I wasn't angry anymore. You know, I was... I found something, I saw a movie, um, funny, two or three of you did too, but, uh, called The Fisher King a couple of years ago. And there's a scene in that where this crazy man is in love with this frumpy office worker, and he sees her in Grand Central Station in New York, and there must be 2,000 people walking through Grand Central Station, just in this mob of people, and out of nowhere they break into a waltz, and everybody in Grand Central Station turns to the person next to them, and they're waltzing around Grand Central Station. Thousands of people all waltzing to this, this calliope music, and it was one of the most beautifully touching scenes I've ever seen in my life. Because when this guy was in love, and love transforms the mundane into the extraordinary, love turns the ordinary into poetry, and alcohol turned my perception of the world into something really, genuinely beautiful. I had never felt that way before. I felt joy for the absolute first time in my life. I had felt happiness before. And I suppose I had felt some kind of comfort before, but I had never felt that unfettered joy where I just felt so grand and so decent inside and so full of being able to fulfill my potential. I felt like my potential was just on the border of being fulfilled. I felt like I was together. And the most important thing was I could just, I looked at you and I didn't feel weird around you anymore and I didn't feel separate from you. And all of a sudden that albumin that seemed to separate me from you evaporated and I was one with everybody. And you cannot experience that feeling from alcohol unless you're an alcoholic. No one else experiences that feeling. That, that gave me such relief from the conflict that was going on inside of me, the guilt and the fear and the low self-esteem and the and the desire to make everything perfect, but not knowing how, not doing anything. I just handed out promises. I just kept writing checks that I couldn't cover, you know. Uh, and I, I drank this, this malt liquor and everything changed. And I remember later that evening, I was running alongside of my friend's car in Silverado Canyon in Orange County, hanging onto the door handle of his car, and he was driving down the street, and I was throwing up in the wind and laughing my ass off. Because I had found it. It, like everyone who's talked about, every, you know, Vinoy and, and the other Al-Anon speakers talk about finding it through us, and we find it through alcohol. And I never, you know, I never drank. I thought about this, and I, I've taken in, numerous inventories. And I realized I never drank to get drunk. I drank to get there. And only alcoholics, I think, understand where there is. We can't describe it, but that place, that just that place where the heat's off and everything is just fine. And it's all working. All the pistons are firing. Everything's moving. And the joys come back and you feel like you can just take on the world there. And my idea of it, you talk about there to non-alcoholics and they look at you as if you just landed from another planet, which you have. They don't understand there. Alcoholics understand pronouns. Alanons do too. 
I knew the first AA meeting I ever went to, and I heard a speaker talk about her, that her had a capital H on it. And I used to get dressed on Friday nights. I, by this time, I vaulted. I wanted to be a writer, and I vaulted into the publishing business uh, as a, I was a receiving clerk in a bookstore. And I was, it was just going to be a, a, just a layover so I could get the big publishing job. Um, never having equated being a writer with actually having written something. And um, that wasn't on the back of a matchbook or on a you know, bar napkin or something. And but I want to live that life, you know, the, wearing the black and thinking and uh, looking very. I got glasses to make me look more thoughtful. I didn't need glasses. The optometrist said your your vision is fine. I said I want glasses. I want those little round ones like John Lennon, where it's just John Lennon's a man and a thinker. You know. So I got those glasses. Now I've got 2,250 vision. All that to look intelligent. All right. Uh, I, I got my idea of what men were like by watching movies. I saw Errol Flynn in movies, and I thought, now that is a man. I look at my dad, and I look at Errol Flynn. You decide, you know? I would look at, I would look at the guys in my neighborhood, and I'd look at Melvin Douglas in a movie, always in a tuxedo, always refined. William Powell, always had Myrna Loy hanging along behind him. They'd find a corpse in their living room, and the first thing they do is make up a shaker of martini. That's living. That's living. That style and that oh, that that glamour and the idea that nothing matters, you know. And uh, it's hard to pull off Errol Flynn when you look like uh, Sherman and Mr. Peabody cartoons, you know. <laughs> but I gave it a try, you know. And, <laughs> and I always wanted that. I just wanted that. I just wanted to get there, you know, just there, that place where. And alcohol provided me with the satisfaction of a job well done without ever having to do a damn thing. I just felt so good. Drunk. Why bother? That's so redundant, you know. I want to go. I should go out and mow the lawn, but I'm going to have a few drinks. Consider the lawn mowed. I'll get to it. You know. I always wanted to play the piano. Always wanted to play the piano. I didn't want to learn how to play the piano. I just wanted to sit down and play the piano. I wanted to sit down and throw the key case back. I walked into a part like a wedding reception out here. I was looking down there and they had a grand piano. I thought, oh God, this is it. Uh, it's a sign. There are women in low cut dresses. There are men out there looking really sharp and, you know, snotty. And uh, I could walk into that, into the midst of that party with all those people and all those women, you know, on hormone alert. And, uh, I've been this, this vibrating vessel of testosterone until about nine, and, uh, which is like a chihuahua going after a German shepherd. Guy. And I would, I'd walk into the middle of that wedding reception out there with my tuxedo on. I'd run up to my room quickly and change, and I'd come in there with a tie slightly askew and a forelock of what my remaining hair uh, hanging down, and, and I would saunter through that crowd, and I'd go over and I'd flip up the keyboard protector and crack my knuckles, and everybody'd still be talking, they wouldn't be paying much attention to me then. But then I'd start playing the piano. I'd play a thoughtful, mournful song. And all of a sudden the conversation would stop. And the women would have tears in their eyes, looking at over where the sound is coming from, and the men would go just slack jaw with envy. And just about when I got all these good looking women paying attention, I'd stop as if the pain were too much to continue. 
and I close the key case. I take my jacket off and throw it over my shoulder and I walk over to the bar and get a double. And the bartender slided across the bar and the best looking woman in the place would slither through that crowd, push everybody out of the way and get right up behind me. She'd take her hand and put it on the back of my pants and on my collar and say, I want you now. And I would turn around and say, no. And you know why? You know why? Because I'm there. And when I'm there, I don't need her. I don't need her. When I'm there, everything's fine. It's just, you know, I go out looking for her on Thursday, on Friday night, Thursday night, Wednesday night, you start backing up. Uh, any old night, uh, I just get dressed to go find her. But once I get there, who needs her? I'm there. Non-alcoholics don't understand that, that when an alcoholic is there, leave me alone. Just get, because I don't want to go back to the reality of disappointment. I don't want to go back to the reality of expectations not being met. I don't want to go back to that dreary reality of knowing that I'm a complete loser. I don't want to go back and look at all that stuff. I have got the picture now. Just don't interrupt. And I always got involved with women who would say, but I want to see you more. Give me a break. You know, when I was talking about women, Al-Anon women or, or pre-Al-Anon women, I don't like to say Al-Anon. I feel I understand exactly what Virginia was talking about. Women who are going without policy and not Al-Anon really come to Al-Anon and work with Jeff and do the program. But pre-Al-Anon women who really want to help but you don't understand. You just don't understand that when you say to me, I want to see you again, all you are going to hear is the sound of Nike rubber burning on the asphalt. <laughs> because that is the last thing I want. I've already committed to the big picture. I don't have time for you, you know? Just leave me alone. And the longer I drink, the bigger the distance. You know, I came, I came into, I started out in the world trying to be something that I wasn't, always, because I was never satisfied with what I was. Nothing was ever right enough or fixed enough or ready enough to go. I just was always wanting something different. I wore this attitude around of that arrogance, you know, that, that conceit of, of being somehow smarter than everybody else and somehow knowing the truth. And I love this attitude around in front of me. When I first started drinking, alcohol filled the gap between what I really was and what that attitude was that I was holding out there. It filled the gap and it made me feel whole and real. And it made me sell that attitude so well that you believed it. And I felt great. I couldn't wait to drink because when I don't drink, there's a big hollow space between me and what I want you to think I am. I can't live with that. I can't live with that failure. I can't live with that kind of... That, that, that sobriety. The world keeps pounding on my mask, you know. I need something to hold up behind it. And when I drank, that fortified me. You know, it held up the mask for me. It kept the attitude up. And by the time I got to AA, I was lugging that attitude around no matter how much I drank. And I could not stop drinking when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I could, I was, actually, when I got to AS, that's a mis- misstatement. I, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous four days after I stopped drinking. I had to stop drinking. I drank for 13 years daily. I was married. I married a lovely woman, a beautiful woman, who had everything in the world going for her except that she loved me. 
you know? And I say that, which I, I, I spoke to her, I see her all the time, at least twice a year. I made my amends to her, and she's my ex-wife now, but I, uh, and she lives out of, out of town, and I don't think she says that she mentions me. Um, I, she asked me one time, do you, because I, I always mask everything with a joke. You know, if I can throw the joke in the air and you laugh at that, you won't laugh at me. You know, I cover up a lot with that. I need to throw the puppet up here and let you laugh at it, and you'll never have to look at what's going on down here, and neither do I. You know, I never have to look at it either. And I and I told her, we were talking about AA one time, and, and she said, um, you make jokes about me when you talk at Alcoholics Anonymous? And she was serious. It was an earnest question. And I thought about that, and I don't ever want to get to the point where I'm flip about somebody whose wife I passed through like that. Because I married her and wanted a relationship with her and wanted to be all the things that we want to be for other people. I don't know an alcoholic who doesn't go into relationships wanting to be the person that they seem to expect me to be. But for me, love is an emotion. When I'm drinking, love is an emotion. And emotions, as everybody knows, are just transitory. They don't last long at all. And once the emotion of love goes away, I feel like love has gone away. And I drink even harder trying to simulate interest and trying to pump up what I am and keep pushing her away by degrees and pushing her away and pushing away any kind of relationship that's good for me, pushing away my parents, pushing away my, my family, pushing away people around me, pushing away the people I work with, holding up, trying to build this wall up to protect myself, and I could not live, and I had no control over it. But I could not live outside that wall. And uh, that woman loved me. You know, her, her life was spent trying to make me happy. And every time she did that, it just pushed me farther back because I just could not stand the guilt or stand the, that feeling of being trapped in a box. And we had every we had everything that you could want as a young couple. We had oh, we were living in a nice little house by the beach. We had the top ten albums. We had a new car. We had a nice life on the surface, except I could not enjoy it or live in the life because I had to drink, and that put me automatically outside of reality, outside of the, of what we had. She wanted to talk about things. Who do you think I am? I've got the big picture. You want to talk about bills? You know? You want to talk about your insipid little problems? You want to talk about us? That's the pronoun alcoholics hate the most. We need to talk about us. Well, there is no us, thanks. There's you and them and then there's me. You know, and I can't be part of us. And when I drank, I, every time I would take a drink, I would swear that I was just going to have a cocktail and just ease off and just try to get there for a second. And I would always, you know, sometimes you can't find there. Sometimes you get there in order to sustain there, you have to leave there. And you wind up there. And you all know where that is. And alcohol had given me so much power before and had given me so much satisfaction and so much joy that I could not stand the idea of not having that because I was sure I could make it work again. And the more I was convicted of that, uh, and the more I tried to do that, the more desperate my drinking got. I had no control over it, and I had no power. My wife used to stop drinking because she said, oh boy, I start to feel like I'm losing control if I drink. My feeling is, I start to get control when I drink. That's when I start to really feel the power. That's why I think so many alcoholics, this is a personal theory, but a lot of alcoholics go to jail. Because, first of all, they do bad things, but... We kind of like the idea. I, I don't know an alcoholic who hasn't lived in a little hovel at one time or another where you've got control over that area. It's small. 
I can touch the walls like this in the whole apartment. I can touch that wall, those walls and the door and the back window like this. And there's a hot plate and a mattress. And I've got control. I've got power over that environment. You know? And the cell is pretty much the same way. I'm, it's under control. You know? There's not going to be a crowd of people if you're saying, let's talk about us. <laughs> when I've got more important things to do, like search for there. And I wound up going to the hospital and, uh, you know, all the dreary stuff that we do, uh, the blood from places where there isn't supposed to be any blood, which is like a morning surprise, you know, let's see where it is today. And uh, going to the hospital with stomach problems and, and going to the hospital not for anything that has to do with alcohol, but stress. And the doctor asked me, I went to the hospital like four times, the emergency room like four times in about six weeks, doubled up. I'm, I'm the guy who calls you at four o'clock in the morning. Can you come over and get me and take me to the hospital? I can't, I can't sit up. I'm dying, you know. Come over and get me and drive me to the emergency room and make me a penance and try to peel me open to take x-rays, you know, and I'd be cramped up and doubled over and sick. And here, drink this quart of water so we can get a urine sample. And nothing like trying to get a quart of water down a guy coming off a drunk. It's like old faithful. You know, you get the, if you barely get past the gag reflex, you get the water down, you're laying on your back and top really up it goes and uh, they can't get a urine sample to save your life. And, uh, and the doctor finally, the internist I was seeing, said, you have, do you have a lot of stress in your life? And I thought, yeah. Oh, yes, I do. You have no idea the kind of pressures around that receiving dock at that bookstore. Um, <laughs> books and paper supplies, it's just a nightmare. Uh, I don't know how I keep up with it, but I try. You know, I'm, uh, I'm a worker. I am a worker, too. I couldn't bear to lose a job. I hear alcoholics all the time say that they've had, you know, 48 jobs in two years. I'll have two jobs in 48 years. We're both, we're the same alcoholic. You know, your motive for, for your job and your job performance is the same as mine. I, I just don't want to lose my nut. I don't want to lose that income, that, that precious thing that keeps me. As long as I got that, I'm not in trouble. I got a job. I'm not an alcoholic. And uh, my wife left because I pushed, I, I pushed her away and pushed her away and literally shoved her and berated her and browbeat her and just treated her with all the contempt that a human being can treat another human being with and finally she left and I got to feel like a victim. She left me. She wouldn't even stick it out. All the pressure I'm under. You know, and she was gone. And I went to therapy. Therapy's great. As long as you never have to leave the therapist's office. <laughs> See, if you're an alcoholic, I'm not knocking therapy. I will not knock any other program or therapy from the podium because that's not AA's business. But therapy did not work for me because it demanded honesty. And as hard as I tried, I could not be completely honest. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I went to therapy for two years. I got, I even got my doctors, uh, my doctor sent me to therapy saying that I had situational problems. And I still keep the prescription note in my wallet because I had to send a copy of it in for insurance purposes. And said, please, Mr. Carney is in need of psychotherapy. Uh, for situational problems. And I thought, what a great euphemism for alcoholism. I'm not a drunk. I have situational problems. <laughs> Seems like every time I'm in a situation, I have a problem. With it. <laughs> Seems like I forget where I've been a lot of the time, even though at first it was cool. I love blackouts at first. You can just shoot hours off your travel time. Um, any of you people who've ever been in a blackout know that when you're when you're standing, you know, you could be in Bismarck, and then ten seconds later you're in the middle of Minneapolis, and you're thinking, "Damn, uh, this is great! Uh, I just blink my eyes, I'm home." 
Beat me home, sorry. Uh, I'm, the only trouble with alcoholics is that sometimes we come out of a blackout, we don't know where we are, or who we're with, and then they say we have no, no willpower. People accuse us of having no willpower. I'll, I'll put an alcoholic against a normal, or a non-alcoholic, let's not call it normal, uh, a non-alcoholic any day for willpower. You can't live like we do without willpower. You can't come out of a blackout, you non-alcoholic. Then you just, pretend you're just sitting here, and all of a sudden, you're sitting in your living room the next, you blink your eyes in your living room, and someone's crying into the grave. And you just don't know what happened, you know? I'm just sitting in the middle of that big Al-Anon conference, and all of a sudden she's crying in the grave. What? I, I know if my, my mom came out and had something like that happen, she'd, not us. A guy like me comes out of the blackout. Here's my here's me come out of the blackout. You know we got we got things to check. We're checking tone of voice. We're checking who it's directed at. We're checking facial expressions, body English. We're sniffing the room. We take a dry check. You know we're checking everything. And we've only got we've only got a few seconds to do it because they keep repeating. Well. I came out of a black. I have. I tell you, I went to a trunk a I came out of a blackout at the dry cleaners one time, and um, the, I, the night before, I had. Uh, I'd been drunk the whole day, and I got home. And I uh, went to bed. I, I woke up in my mother's nightgown, and um, it was. I was broken into her house because she was out of town for the weekend. I just couldn't get home, so I went to her house, got in. Woke up in the side, I went out in the kitchen, and it was just a mess. My buddy of mine was out there drunk, and he, he was passed out on the table, and there was some cherry brandy, and his face was stuck to it. It looked like a big fly on a piece of fly paper, and I, I had to get him out of there and clean this place up because my mom was coming home, and I tried to clean this, this place up, and it still smelled funny in there. You know, and I got everything stick and stand. That's fantastic, everything. And I, I, I thought, well, it's the best I can do. I'll just leave a couple of windows open. I'll leave, and I grabbed my sweater, and it weighed about seven pounds. And I thought, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So I, I you know, there it was, uh, three meals, and I put it in the, put it in the sink and poured cologne on it and everything, kind of cleaned it out, and I went home and hung it up on the line and dry it out, air it out real nice, and then I had to go to the dry cleaners, and one of these days I wound up going there in a blackout, and I'm standing there, I'm just there, and the dry cleaners in this blackout, and I came out of the blackout, and there's Morris the Martinizing King leaning over the counter saying, box or hangers? With that, with that look on his face, you know, just like, how many times do I have to ask you? And I didn't even, I had to immediately figure out where I was, who he was, what I was doing. I just said, hanger. I turned on a walk off. I got outside and thought, why? You know what? And this is awful. I mean, you know, and that, and that look on his face like, you're kicking your sweater too, didn't you? And that look. And, um, and I got, I started saving up. I went to, like I said, I went to therapy and that didn't work. And, uh, I started getting informational paralysis. You know what that is? And you start learning so much that you can't move. I think it happens at treatment centers a lot. They give you so much information about the 33rd chromosome and, uh, you know, the alcohol body weight variants and all that stuff. They give you that, uh, you know, that, uh, 
chart that tells you how much you can drink if you weigh a certain amount and all these things and what's the legal limit of drunk and you're, all that crap. I get so much information, I just can't move. I need a drink. When I got that, when I went to the hospital for stress, they gave me Valium. That's a stupid drug. I didn't want Valium. I, could, I tried drugs. Like, I never bought from an addict, but I, I went, I tried my little run with drugs. I took speed and did not like this. I didn't like the sensation that drugs gave me because it made me high. But I didn't want to be high. I wanted to be there. There is not high. There is there. And drugs get me all groggy and loaded. You know, this is not a bad sensation, but it didn't fix what was going on in me. I took speed for a long time. And I didn't like the sensation of my eyes trying to perceive me into the next room. You know, I feel like I, um, I took, uh, I smoked PCT a few times, uh, just socially, and, uh, I was right behind this bar called the Shimmy Shack, and I was sitting back there smoking the PCT, and I went back in the bar and ordered a beer, and I was sitting at the bar and having this beer, and all of a sudden my brain started to melt. And it's, uh, I mean, literally, it, I've never had such a vivid hallucination, it started melting on the back of my neck. And I could, I was sucking my eyeballs down my neck, and I was looking up, and I could see the light coming through the eye sockets, like this. And all I could do, I, I couldn't even talk. And I started sliding off the bar stool, and my friends did what any good friends would do. They took me in the bathroom and dumped me on the floor. And I'm hallucinating for about three hours on the floor, like a big blob of jello. And there's the next, every so often I'd open one eye, and there'd be someone urinating over my head into the toilet. And you know what? In all, everything I could pull together, all I could think of was Melvin Douglas would not do this. But I did. And then there was pot, you know, oh, there's a drug. Well, what a great, if you're a musician, you want to sit and listen to the bass line in some Steely Dan album for about nine hours and then uh, wind up at three in the morning eating a jar of mayonnaise. That's a big night for your pot smokers, I guess, so... I ate a billion cube on pot once, so you'll eat anything. It was crunchy. It tastes like chicken. And, uh, then I, um, then there's Valium. You, know, you want to sit around and sigh the rest of your life? Take Valium. Uh, but I don't want to sigh. I want to live. You know, I don't want to just live either. I want to live. I want to get out there. I want to live. I mean, live. Get out there and just rip through life. I want to grab it up. I want to take the grapes of life and crush them against the roof of my mouth. I want to squeeze it out. I want to kiss it and hug it and touch it and you know what it and rock it out there. And I want to take all the skin and peel it off and let the long nerve ending stand out. And I want to live my life with that pain, that sweet, miserable pain that we live with. And go out there and I want to live it up and I want to write it down. And I want to write down all the pain and the sorrow and all the stuff that I've learned in this terrible, terrible journey and rock it off like a comet. And right at the peak of my life, I want to explode and just shower the world in stars. Now, and I'm going to do it all tomorrow. Tonight, you know, one more, and I'll, I'll leave. And uh, I wound up at this meditation retreat trying to hang myself to cut a story short, and uh, that's not important how I got there, but you can figure it out. Uh, I was at this meditation retreat, and people were, were meditating, and uh, not me. I was caroming around on the floor, and I had a drink for 24 hours, and uh, I, I started, I just had a breakdown. I've been saving food at home for Armageddon for months. I mean, literally saving canned goods in the house. And uh, I was going to buy guns. I was shopping for guns on my lunch break. I was just a nice guy. You know? I go to work and I look pretty much just like, you know, I 
little more redder than I am now, and maybe a little uh, a little weaker, and my kidneys were failing, and I just thought it was fine. You know, everything's okay. And I get home and go into paranoid fear of what's happening in the world and what's going on with people around me. I don't have any control over it, and goddamn it, the bruise doesn't work anymore. I need some help. I go on a therapy retreat, and I'm sitting there, and she has the audacity to say, I want you to go out on the ground for the next five hours and think about where your life has come so far and where it's going to go. Oh, why don't you just stick a shotgun in my mouth? Thanks. Uh, I'll hold and you pull because I don't have anything going in my life. I am a zero. You know, I am zero. I, I thought that, that despair that every speaker's gotten up here, whether they're Al-Anon or alcoholic, has talked about is a sense of despair. What is going to happen? What can I do? There is nothing, nothing, nothing that I can do. I have no power. I have no will to live. I have no interest in living. The world is a big cesspool. The world is a big, miserable place full of people who just don't get it. And I get it. And nobody will listen. Nobody will take me seriously. And I didn't want to live like you know, I, I, And I knew I couldn't drink anymore. At that moment, I knew that if I went home that night, I would just go home and get a bottle of whiskey and drink it again and go through the same cycle. And I would live that way until I was 75 years old. And I couldn't bear that. And I wanted to die. And I thought, I'm nothing. I am nothing. And I felt that with absolutely no self-pity. I am nothing. And I got a feeling at that same moment that I felt that, that said, yes, I still love you. And I don't know where that came from. It went right up my spine. And I felt absolutely loved. And I don't know what happened. I know now what happened. I believe now that that is not any manifestation of my imagination. It's a higher power, you know? And we all experience that. Every alcoholic I know has experienced something like that in some way. Sometimes the nudge comes like that. Sometimes the nudge comes in the night when you're feeling so lonely and so empty that you ask God for help and you feel like you've been helped already and you don't know where that feeling came from. But I had to empty myself out of all that egotistical planning and all that egotistical crap in order to leave a place in there for him to walk in. And he just walked in. I didn't even really invite him, but I was just empty and I left the door open. You know? And some people get it from the taillights of a police car. Uh, you know, when they look in the tail, the rearview mirror of their car and see those blue lights, that's a spiritual awakening. <laughs> that's surrendering to a power greater than you are. <laughs> some of us get it from that look in our family's eyes, from the look of our, our people who love us, from the look on their faces, they don't even have to say a word. They just look at us with that last look that says, I just don't believe in you anymore. I just can't, I don't know what to do with you. I'm completely at wit's end with you. I've gotten that from my wife, from my mom. You know, I, she, didn't, she didn't understand. And I felt, and, and with all that going on, I felt completely in love. And I went home that night and I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to drink. I wanted to drink, but I didn't want to want to drink. So I didn't drink. Willpower. I'll just apply willpower. Like I always knew, I'll apply it. I just will grab this problem and I'm going to be fine, you know. I went to the next four days getting more and more fine. Alcoholics, when they don't drink and don't have anything else to fill in the gap there, just get fine. And I got more and more brittle and more and more out of control, and I, I would fall asleep uh, talking to my boss, and, and, and she would sit across the table from my desk, and, and she'd say, uh, Charlie, are you listening to me? I just put my head down and go sound asleep on the desk. And she, she didn't do anything about it. She, in fact, she would tell other people who were walking by, don't wake him up, he's sleeping. You know? I used to come to this woman's house drunk because I get lost on the way home. 
and would wind up at her house and she would let me in and she'd give me Jack Daniels thinking if she would let me drink at her house that I would be okay. That's how to help us. She didn't understand. I had people invite me over there, you know, nice, well-meaning people who would say, I know how you must feel about Lisa leaving you. Why don't you come over to our house? You don't have to drink. A woman found me drunk on the street one night, a woman I worked with. I'd been the best man at her son's wedding. And she was driving down the street at midnight for some reason. There I was staggering home on the sidewalk and she, uh, she told me the next day that she had seen me. She said, why do you, you know, on Friday, she said, why do you drink that way? Why don't you come over to our house? Jim and I have Jack Daniels over there. You can have drinks with us. You know, we'll drive you home if you need to. And, you know, God, I just felt such agony inside because she just didn't understand. That's not, you just don't get it. It's not just the alcohol. The alcohol feeds something in me. And I can't get enough of it. I can't get any relief from the way I feel about all this stuff, you know. And I, the more I, and when I stopped drinking, I had nothing but what my sponsor described as raw information coming in with nothing to buffer it. Just this raw information. And all I could do was check out, walk away, cry. An Anglo-Saxon boy like me, weeping, copiously. Anglo-Saxons don't cry. We just were a civilization. Let me feel a little better. You know, I'm talking to much of I guess, but I don't know if he's going to Scandinavians in my life. I, I, I was looking at old relatives in the, in the book today, in the phone book, and I had to go through like 90 pages of Carlson's. Um, but I, I felt this, just this frustration that I didn't drink. Why don't I feel better? Unaware of anything about alcoholism. And about the fourth day of my not drinking, um, I went to my, my sister-in-law had gotten out of a treatment center in, or- in Orange, California. And I, I, she asked me to take, she asked if I would take her to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I went to visit her and she trusted at me because she had seen me. She knew what I was and she knew, who, knew things about me. And she didn't try to give me a hard sell at all. She did what every alcoholic does and I'm sure every alcoholic does when you get a newcomer around. You're just so overjoyed that you got somebody to tell what she found. You know? And, she gave me the message of Alcoholics Anonymous for 21 days sober. She passed it along. And she, was, she looked beautiful and she looked radiant. And she had that look in her eye that has that kind of recovery in it that we have. That, that comfortable, settled look that speaks to having something going on inside more than what she could ever have pulled together on her own. And she asked me if I would take her to a Sunday night meeting. And I did. And I took her to a meeting, coincidentally, and that's the same meeting that's uh, 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 in the same city where Jean lives in Tustin on a Sunday night. And, and uh, I went to that meeting and she said, well, I was in drop her off. So I don't have a problem, see. It's not that I'm an alcoholic. I just have situational problems. She said, well, why don't you come in and meet some of my friends from the, uh, from the recovery place? And I thought, well, nothing could please me more, you know, than to meet her friends from this detox. Uh, I went in that room and I looked around. All I could think when I walked into my, the door of my first AA meeting, I thought, loserama. <laughs> not that I judge, but by God, if... Uh, Immediately, the wall went up again, and the mask went up. I'm holding the mask up as hard as I can. That attitude, you know, I, I realized I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous with empty attitude, looking for a human being to put inside of it. You know, just a, and all I could do it was everything I could do to try to hold this attitude up one more time and defend myself. And it was that arrogance, and it was that conceit, and that, that I'm smarter than you are. I have a plethora of reasons why I shouldn't be here. <laughs> Which is, uh, which is what I say now, uh, instead of shitload. Um, (laughs) 
love my friends. And I didn't want to be there. And I felt less than because I didn't have one of those plastic wristbands in the hospital on. It should have been a tip off. I looked around all these people and thought, boy, if I had, if I looked like you, I would have quit. Now this was in the middle of June in a hot cell in LA. I was in a tweed jacket. It was my writer's outfit. A tweed jacket with a wool sweater vest, sunglasses, and a deerstalker hat. <laughs> looking very, standing off in the corner like this, looking very literary. People walk by and say, hi, are you new? <laughs> Don't kid yourself. I'm not new. I'm visiting. Well, God, keep coming back. Here's my number. Why do I want, why do I want your number? I'm not here because I'm an alcoholic. I'm here because I'm visiting this poor woman who is coming to AA. I'm not an alcoholic. I've got potential left. I've still got that ember I'm fanning, you know, for all I'm worth. And uh, none of the people in AA seem to care. They're just... Well, come on in. Have a cup of coffee. Oh, boy. This is real, really Hicksville. I'll tell you. Um, this insipid responsory over the podium. Hi, I'm Ted. I'm not all. Hey, Ted. Oh, he knows he's Ted. He just said he was Ted. Why do you have to say Ted? There's some, some twisted Norman Vincent Peel thing going on in here. And, uh, and I came in a just like a lot. I heard a woman named Eileen W. in my uh, in my home group. She spoke in my home group. She said she walked into Alcoholics Anonymous saying, "Help me, help me, hey, help me." Uh, and that's how I came in. I just wanted your help so much, but I would not let the wall down for you to help me. And I wanted a spiritual experience because I always wanted to feel spiritual. I always wanted that, but it just wasn't working because I'm not going to do it alone. I'm not going to be humble if the rest of you are going to live like a bunch of hedonists. You get all the credit, all the good stuff. I'm not going to be humble alone. You know, so I'm not going to be humble at all. And people were nice to me. I came back the following week because I, I was um, sitting at home and there was a bottle of Jack Daniels at home and I, uh, I didn't want to drink. You know, I, I hadn't had a drink for two weeks now, almost two weeks. And I went to that meeting and I identified as an alcoholic because I didn't want you people to feel embarrassed because I, I was an outsider looking at you. So I, I said, I went along with the game. I said I was an alcoholic. I didn't believe it. I heard a guy participate in the podium who, who said some things that made me just laugh my head off. And I realized only later that we don't laugh, you know, only alcoholics laugh at some of those stories. Other people, you know, try pulling those off at the PTA. Then I say his bed on fire, and people are falling out of their chairs, you know, just dying. Then I told the cop, oh, so that's your gun. Well, I suppose that's your mail, and it's too. And everyone's laughing, laughing. Everybody else is, whoo. And I'm never say that's an officer of the law. I never did. <laughs> I always said, yes, officer, and I felt that, though. I'm a secret rebel. And, uh,. I don't want anybody not to like me, you know. I would have stormed the Bastille on uh, July 1st yelling, I'm really sorry about this. I'm really, you know, we're killing your children and wives, but I'm really sorry. Uh, the apologetic Charles Manson. And uh, nothing personal. And uh, I came back to that AA meeting that night, and I, it was 4.30. It wasn't night. It was 4.30 in the afternoon, but it was a 7 o'clock meeting, 7.30 meeting. And, uh, these guys were in there making coffee, and they said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm, I'm looking for some people who were here last week. And the guy said, oh, you mean AA meeting? And I thought, jeez, come on. There might be a janitor outside or something to hear that. Just come on. And uh, 
I found myself. I, I got a sponsor because I, I didn't do it because I wanted to. Prerequisite is no, there's no prerequisite of sincerity in order to stay sober. You don't have to be sincere, you just have to do it. You know? You can grouse about it all you like. I did. I hated it. I didn't do anything willingly. I just did it to humor you. And my sponsor said, I want you to get commitments to me. I want you to go to six meetings a week. I want you to get commitments to four of them. I started going to this hideous Pacific Group meeting on Wednesday night, and Nancy was the secretary of that meeting. I was in awe. There were about 400 people that got together every Wednesday night at that time, and we sat there and they had a meeting, and Nancy was the chair of the secretary of that meeting. I, I was, you know, I was working at the bookstore one day. One afternoon, I was about three or four months sober, and Nancy came into the bookstore, and I was embarrassed because she had seen me there working in that, you know, because I'd always tried to, I'd come to Wednesday night meeting in my tweed jacket from St. Martin's thrift store looking like the writer that I wasn't. And Nancy came into that bookstore and I was slogging books and sweating and she, she saw me and I, I, you know, there was nobody to just run. And uh, I went up to her and, and, and she wanted me to help in that bookstore. And I was able to help her. And that's just, you know, I, was, I, was, I felt better because I was able to get her a book or whatever it was that she needed at the time. I felt more comfortable seeing her the next time. You know, and it was a, an important thing for me because I was so new and so scared that to see somebody outside of a meeting treat me with respect and with kindness and need help on top of that from me. Nobody ever asked me for help. And I was on, I, I couldn't give it. I didn't think I could give it if I, if I had to. I'm the fireman, you know. They used to have a commercial on TV for mutual, mutual rights or something where they show the fireman in slow motion running down the flight of stairs and tearing down the flight of stairs and he's got his axe in his hand and he's holding his head down and the beams are falling and the fire is raging and he's running in slow motion they're talking about this insurance company and he gets outside and opens up this, this piece of uh, blanket that he's got and there's a baby inside of it you know and he's talking about insurance and I always wanted to be a fireman you know I always wanted to run down the stairs and save the world I always wanted to do the great big thing that would make me feel as if I had some value in life because I didn't have any value at all the way I felt. I wanted to make the big gesture and do the big thing so that you would look at me and say, now that's a real man, you know? And I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to find out that sometimes you just have to be the baby. You just have to let them scoop you up and take you where they're going to take you and put you on your feet and do whatever it is people suggest you to do just to save your life. Because we're not going to be laughing these meetings and we have such a great time, but we're talking about life and death here. Uh, a guy I got sober with who had, who had slipped the year before I got sober and he came back and he had a year when I got sober and we had been sober in a cross path for years and uh, he went out and got drunk last November with 13 years sobriety and he came back to Alcoholics Anonymous and he just he was filled with resentment and anger about what had happened and anger of people in AA and he went back out again and drank again and they found him dead last Wednesday morning you know and I just talked to his wife a couple of days before, and she had to divorce him. She had to file for divorce, and it broke her heart to have to do that. But she had to cut him loose. And she's an alcoholic, too, and she knows enough about having to just, just to say it herself, she had to cut all the ropes for him. And he went down. And he swore he would. You know? My best friend after high school was my drinking buddy, John. And John and I drank for years together at the Humdinger and the Chimney Shack and all these great watering holes that uh, the stars go to. And, uh, uh, John, I, I really, I admired John, and he was my idol for years, because he was a drummer, and the girls liked him, and he was, you know, outgoing, and had a great sense of humor, I just walked around him like a puppy, you know, and uh, I eventually lost track of each other, because I'd moved, and, and um, 
I got sober, and he started calling me, and I kept trying to talk to him about. I didn't try to force AA down his throat because when an alcoholic's not ready, they can't hear it, you know. And he, I just told him what I was doing. I said, "So why don't you come to a meeting with me?" Because he had had to stop drinking because of himself, and, uh, and he said, "No, I just I can't, you know, I just can't do it." And he drank more, and he started getting sicker and sicker. And finally, he had to stop drinking because he had a heart condition and he had a lot of other problems. And I talked to him about five years, four years ago, and, and I kept saying, John, why don't you, I'll tell you what, why don't you just come up here, we'll have dinner, and we'll go to a meeting. And he said, you know what, his spine started to fuse, and it was bending him over, and he's 39 years old, and he stooped over like an old man with a cane, and he weighed about 105 pounds, and he said, I just look so bad. I just can't go. And I said, I couldn't convince him. And because you have to oversell it to convince them, but people don't care. They don't care how you look. They're glad you're there. There's nothing but joy that we feel when new people come into AA because we've got something that we have to share with somebody else or we cannot keep it. We have to share it. Not out of obligation, out of joy, you know? And the chaos of our lives, because sobriety does not bring order in life. It just brings a set of principles through the steps and my sponsor, Bill McDonald, who I will say, because he likes to get the tape and edit out this part, and uh, put on a loop for himself, um, brought me through the effects through example as much as by instruction. He showed me how to work with newcomers. He showed me how to take an inventory. He showed me how to surrender to a power greater than I am by showing up in meetings early every week, by shaking everybody's hand, by shaking every participant's hand, by shaking every speaker's hand, and by staying after and mopping the room. And I hated doing every single bit of it. I hated it. I hated it. And I almost told him so, but I was, I was too busy, you know, and I kept mopping the floor and just grumbling, you know, and, and uh, I started to feel that power greater than I am working in my life, and I took an inventory with this man, and I dumped a lot of the stuff that I felt, all the guilt I felt about my father, and all the shame I felt for having treated him the way he, I did, by just not wanting to, I just couldn't bear to interact with him, and I loved him. I loved him, and I couldn't tell him. I couldn't do it, you know, and I was just eaten up with that. And I, and I didn't know how to make amends because he had died in, uh, years before I got sober. And I, I managed to take, you know, I made amends, I made my amends list and, and did my six or seven step, put together an amends list and started going out and trying to make amends to people if I could. And uh, one of them was my dad. And I didn't know how to do it and I put it out for years because he, Bill kept saying, write a letter to him. And I didn't think that was enough. It wouldn't be enough to do it. And I kept double-guessing or second-guessing his instruction. And finally, uh, I was on my way home from an out. I wanted to have an Al-Anon function that I was going with with my girlfriend at the time, who taught who was an Al-Anon in good standing and taught me so much about Al-Anon's side of this program that it just absolutely opened up my life on that area. And hanging out with Vinoy and some of the other Al-Anons that I know who have, have shown me exactly what the inverse side of this program is. You know, how alcoholism is not just my disease, it's your disease too. Because you react to everything I do in a way that most people would just not do. Most people just walk away from us, or throw us out, or cut us off. But you insist on loving us. And that's the worst tragedy in the world, because God damn it, I don't want your love, you know. He wants you to leave me alone. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, alcoholics told me, put your hands down. Relax. Nobody wants a thing from you. Just want you to stay. Don't drink. Work the steps. Start making amends, reparation for what you've done. So I, I was coming home from this Al-Anon function, and I realized that I was within like a mile of the cemetery where my father was buried. I hadn't been there for 19 years. I hadn't been there since the day we buried him. And I went to that cemetery, and I heard Clint H. in my group talk about making amends to his mother. And uh, 
I did exactly what I heard him say. I stopped at a store across the street from the cemetery and I bought some carnations. My father was a bit of a goofball, but he loved carnations. He loved the smell of carnations. And uh, I got some scissors at the store. I got a paper towel, just like I heard Clint saying. I got, and I was going to go over there and trim whatever grass was around that grave and fix it up, you know, and just and go there and make my amends. And so I went there and... Uh, the guy at the funeral at the, at the cemetery said, well, here's a map. This is a huge cemetery. And I drove in there, and I couldn't find his grave, and I was getting frustrated and angry looking for this grave, and I finally found it, and I sat down. And uh, I did the stuff I had to do, and I just did what I had to do. I did, and I had no emotional reaction at all. No emotions going on really at all at that point. And I put the flowers down, and I trimmed around the grave, cleaned it up a little bit, and uh, I just talked to him. I said, I, you know, I told him I was sorry for anything I may have done to make him feel like I didn't love him that I was fine, that everything in my life, you know, I've gone through so many career changes in sobriety. I've, I became a high school teacher sober. I became a, a writer sober. I wrote my first book sober. I was in the middle of writing this book when I went there, and I, I was telling him about what I was doing, basically. You know, and I was expecting some big thing to happen, you know, and nothing happened. And I sat there for a while, and it started to cloud up because it was in November, and it was getting really dark outside, and it was the middle of the afternoon, and, uh, I just felt inside like he absolutely understood. I could picture my father saying, what are you talking to me like that for? I love you. I've never stopped loving you. You never did anything to hurt me. I was always proud of you. He was always proud of me, no matter what a schlub I was, you know. No matter where I worked or what kind of a goofball I was, my father loved me unconditionally, and my mother continues to love me unconditionally. And my mother, you know, I brought my mother to Thanksgiving at the noise house a couple of years ago, and she was in awe of, she'd never been to an Al-Anon meeting, and then a meeting after the, meet, after the dinner, there were maybe 30 people sitting in the noise family room, and her husband and her daughter and the family was there, and kids, and people in the fellowship were just sitting around, we had an AA and Al-Anon meeting, just a participation meeting, and everybody went around and talked about Thanksgiving, and, uh, you know, my mom was overwhelmed by this, she'd never, she'd never experienced anything like this. And she was touched by it, but she's just like me. She doesn't know how to react, and she's afraid. And, she, and I would love to see my mom come to Al-Anon. I would love to see my mom find the love that's here. But all I can be is sober for her, and all I can do is expose her to my life sober and hope that God finds a way, because she's had a terrible life, and she's had a lot of difficulties in her life that I don't have any power over. And she's always tried to protect me against someone. And she's always tried to provide for me and protect me and show me the way, you know. And uh, I love my mom, and I love my father. I love my stepfather when he was alive, and I was able to live the life that I wish I could have lived with my dad to my stepfather. And when he died a couple of years ago, I was able to sit there with him in the hospital and just tell him, I love you. And even though he was in a coma, I know he understood, and I felt completely free with him. And I knew he loved me like a son. And I think that was part of, that's part of amends, you know, for living out the principles of this program. And through my conscious contact with God every day, through prayer and meditation, I found out that I don't have to be... Uh, listening to Ravi Shankar albums like I did when I was newly sober to try to meditate. I learned how to meditate from my mom. I didn't know it at the time, but once I started meditating and trying to think of all oh, you know, walking through forests and all these things, uh, oh God, thou art so big. And uh, I, uh, I, I kept trying to meditate that way, and I, real, I got, through my meditation, I learned how to meditate. And that was, my mom told me when I was a little kid, if you ever get lost in the market, don't look for me because we're going to keep passing each other on the way, and you'll never know where I'm going to be looking for you. So just stay exactly where you are, and I will find you. So when I meditate, I sit right where I am, 
and he finds me. You know? I don't go wandering all over with some incantation and I don't burn any substances in the room or, you know, have any kind of music going, no Kenny G in the background. I just sit and listen. And sometimes I don't hear anything, but I know he's there. Because he's never not there. I just know he's there. I just know my receptor's a little bit off. And I take this message and try to carry it to alcoholics to the best of my ability. I show up for work. I, I have doubts about my abilities at work. And I continue to show up and try to fulfill them. And I have a lot of setbacks in my life. And I have a lot of trouble with relationships in my life. I continue to have difficulties with relationships with women. Because I'm selfish. And because I still have that old, old feeling that love is an emotion. And I've learned through people in AA, and very importantly, people from al that love is action. And, and when I'm involved with a person involved in al we have a shot at it, you know. And I went with this woman for three and a half years, this young lady in al and we tried everything, you know. We wanted to get married, and we tried, tried so hard to make this thing work. And we did the steps on it, and we worked through our sponsors on it, and it just didn't work, you know. And it, we had to split up, and it hurt really bad later on. But I don't have an emotional reaction to anything until months later. You know, I'm on three months delay. If you slap me today and I'll get pissed around December. Uh, but that's, that's how I am. But I continue to be able through your help to walk out. And you know, I look at, I read the newspaper unfortunately every day and this is a really difficult world to put it mildly. I live in a city that's under a lot of, in a lot of turmoil. And people get irritated with themselves and angry. There's a lot of hatred and anger in the world and a lot of misunderstanding and all those things. It just looks like turmoil, you know. And I can hardly wait to get to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings sometimes because I get in here and through God's grace, I can see the waltz, you know. I can see the waltz. Because that's what God's grace is. It's not like it comes from some big Pez dispenser and we're all clamoring for one of those little cubes. God gives His grace. His grace is already here. It's already here. It's in everything. It's in the chair you're sitting on. It's in the coffee you're drinking. It's in the energy that vibrates through this room during the Lord's Prayer. It's in the comfort that's here. It's in every single thing. It's in every hurt person out there. Because for every person who's hurt out there, there are ten people who want to love and help that person. And I always forget that there's a reaction to every bit of bad in the world. And the, the reaction is tenfold good. And we see battered up women coming into Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous. And we see men coming in here just completely devastated by what they've done in their lives as alcoholics. And we see the shame and the guilt and the fear. And no one in Alcoholics Anonymous says, well, you better come back later when you're a little better. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we say, you are absolutely welcome here. Your seat has been saved for you. No one will ever occupy that seat for you. And if someone does occupy it, we will get another seat for you because you are absolutely welcome here as long as you want to stay sober. As long as you want to stay here and find out what we have. Because the choice is yours, ultimately. It's not mine. And I come to Alcoholics Anonymous because I hear Alcoholics Anonymous from the podium. I don't hear other 12-step programs from the podium. I have absolute respect for other 12-step programs, but I do not want to hear them from my Alcoholics Anonymous podium. And I know Al-Anons do not want to hear Alcoholics Anonymous from their Al-Anon podium unless they've been asked. But this is, this is sacred up here. We're, we're not talking about everything anonymous. We're talking about alcoholism. And that is a really distinct disease. And it has really distinct circumstances around it and really devastating consequences. And people walk in here beaten up by those consequences and we love them and we try to show them the steps to the walls. You know? You know how clunky we are? How gawky and self-centered and and embarrassed we are about everything, 
But there's always someone here that's going to take you by the hand and lead, you know, and take you through the steps and walk you through here until pretty soon you can see the beauty of the movement of what's going on in here and you want to come back even when you're hurting inside even when you're aching inside you come back here and we'll show you again and again and again as long as you want it as long as you want it and we're all in it together because we've all lived through this devastating disease together and now we should all live in this recovery together you know there's no separation in that and I am absolutely grateful to be sober I am I am blessed by I, I can't explain it I don't have the words. I don't have a plethora of words to tell you how I feel. And I'll tell you one thing. I I say this not fatuously. I say this with what I what I feel, and that is I love you because I'm willing to do anything for you to stay sober. I'm willing to take any action necessary to help in share what I have with you because otherwise I don't have anything. And again, I thank the committee, and God bless you, and thank you.